Well, good morning. It is good to see some people here. I, I didn't know how many we would have, honestly. And uh, so for those of you that are in the room, um, congratulations. You are hearty folk. And uh, that's not to take anything away from those that are joining us online, uh, but I do have a special request for those of you that are in the room. Uh, I'll need you to laugh a little louder at the jokes, and if something, that, very good, that, 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 was, that was a good start. If something sounds particularly good, give it a hearty amen. Those of you online, there are little reactions that you can click throughout the message that can let people know you loved a statement, or you laughed at a statement, or something really made you mad. Um, every now and then, somebody will accidentally click that one, I hope, Um, (laughs) because I'm like, I don't think I said anything that was that bad. Um, But uh, it is good to be together in the house of the Lord today and uh, to feel uh, the warmth of fellowship um, uh, here in this place and uh, to to be worshiping with you online. My question as we begin is, do you believe in miracles? Like, do you really believe in in miracles, in healings, in signs and wonders? Do you believe the miracles that you read in Scripture, do you believe that they actually happened? And when somebody tells you a story about a miraculous healing or a miraculous event in their life, is your first reaction to be skeptical? Say, well, I don't know. They sure seem convinced. Or is it to believe and to give praise to God for that miracle. I know I've been on both ends of that continuum, and that early in my life, I was pretty black and white, pretty literal, very skeptical of miracles. And that skepticism even bled into Scripture. But then when you start to personally experience miracles, it becomes a lot harder to deny them and to deny them in other people's lives. And some, maybe some of you have experience with miracles, experience with healings, experience with miraculous power coming into a situation and changing a situation or a relationship or a circumstance. And it was an undeniable miracle, something that broke the natural order, that things were moving in this direction and something intervened. And it's pretty hard to deny once you've experienced a miracle. And other people might be skeptical and that's their choice, but it really doesn't change you. And I personally believe in miracles because I am one. I know that at my lowest point, when I was heading in the wrong direction, and things were getting worse and worse and worse, and I was losing hope and on the verge of despair, Christ intervened in a miraculous way. And so I believe in miracles. I am one. I've never been the same since. And maybe you have a story like that. But one thing that I have learned about miracles is that miracles always, always, always serve to advance His message. When God does a miracle in your life or in the life of someone else, He's not just showing off. He's not lifting you up to make you look good. He's wanting to advance His message. He's wanting you to give glory to God for the miracle that you have experienced, the miracle that you have received. And so that's pertinent, I believe, because we're wrapping up a series titled Say What, where we've been focused on the miracles and the message of Christ. And we see this pattern in Scripture over and over and over and over and over again. There's a miracle, and the miracle serves to advance the message 
of Jesus, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this series, we've been walking through Luke and Acts. The first four messages were focusing on Luke following our Bible reading plan from the Banding Together journals. Then that last couple of messages have been focusing on Acts as we've transitioned into Acts. A couple weeks ago, I spoke on the bold belief that the first believers exhibited in the face of persecution and, and difficult circumstances and and yet they could not help but speak of what they had seen and heard. And we saw how bold prayer led to bold belief and bold proclamation. Uh, last week, Pastor Zach did a wonderful job talking about moving from our, your Saul to your Paul. That, that change, that dramatic transformation, undeniable power of God, the undeniable submission that Paul and Ananias had to that power, and then the undeniable transformation that takes place. And you could make a case that we're here today because of that conversion experience in many ways, that that set in motion things. And maybe they would have happened through someone else. Uh, We have to believe that when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it, that if something had happened with Paul, somebody else would have carried the torch forward and set in motion the things that have happened. But today we're wrapping up this series, and we're going to look uh, at, at a, a message from Acts chapter 16 uh, where, where we see somebody experience a miracle and hear the message and experience salvation. The message today is titled, Believe and Be Saved, and uh, this will bring an end to our Say What series. Next week we'll start a new series titled, Trust and obey as we move into the letters of Paul in the New Testament. So as you're reading your Bible reading plan in the Banding Together journals, if you don't know what I'm talking about, get, get in hold of us. Let us know. Let, talk to me after service. We'll get, get one of those journals in your hand. If you're watching online and you're not quite sure what we're talking about, indicate that on your connection card. Send an email. Uh, let us know and we will get, uh, get one of those with you uh, or get one of those in your hands because this progression from miracle to the message being preached, to salvation, and then proclamation and service by the one who was just saved. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. So if you want to turn to Acts chapter 16, we're going to be in verses 25 through 34. That'll be our main focus. If you're here in the room, the uh, Pew Bibles, uh, it's page 1721. If you're joining us online, just find a Bible, get it open, bring you up to speed a little bit. Uh, the context, uh, sort of since last week, um, when we looked at Acts chapter 9, um, Paul has begun a public ministry. Um, he went to visit the disciples in Jerusalem, and then he kind of steps out of the limelight for a while, and he sort of disappears. And uh, we start hearing about this church in Antioch in, in Acts chapter 11. And there were, it was kind of a multicultural, multinational church, uh, Barnabas who helped Paul uh, in Jerusalem to get in front of the disciples because they didn't want anything to do with him. They didn't know about the transformation that had taken place. So Barnabas comes alongside Paul there, and then Barnabas again in chapter 11 uh, goes from Antioch to Tarsus. And this isn't like saying, you know, Mark went to Sioux City and got so-and-so and brought him back. Like, from Antioch to Tarsus was ships and boats and months and danger and toil to go and to find Paul and to bring him back. And Barnabas does that. And they begin a public ministry in Antioch uh, that that is really powerful and really significant. And they start going on missionary journeys. And uh, they go out, and we're told that they do miracles. 
and signs and wonders, and they proclaim the message as they go out and as they travel the Mediterranean world. And it's interesting, there begins to be a tension around this time between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews are increasingly resistant to the message that Paul and Barnabas are preaching. In the, the, the farther they get from Jerusalem, let's say, the more resistant the Jews are to this message. And there's a kind of a dividing line. And Paul and Barnabas realize that they are sent mostly to the Gentiles. And so they make that the focus of their ministry. And in the same time, in Acts chapter 15, there's this Jerusalem council where they're saying, now, what are we going to do with these Gentiles that are coming to faith? Are we going to make them follow the law of Moses? That doesn't seem to really line up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and so there's a big council, and they decide, and they land on this really important uh, thing for us to understand as well as we think about those that are not yet a part of the family of God. The, the Jerusalem Council, they say, let us not make it difficult for the Gentiles that are turning to faith. Let's don't laden them with a bunch of, of difficult uh, rituals that they have to go through, chief among them circumcision. You can see how that would be a deterrent to accepting faith in Jesus Christ. You know, there's surgery involved in this. Like, uh, that was a big deal, and they made the right decision. And the rest of the New Testament and the spread of the gospel uh, from that point uh, operates on this idea. Let us not make it difficult for those who are turning to faith. Let's don't laden them with a bunch of rules and regulations that we had to follow under the old covenant. Let's instead welcome them into the family of God and allow the Holy Spirit to begin to transform their lives from the inside out and make them different. And this is going to be important in a few minutes um, when we get a little bit further on. And so now Paul and Silas and Timothy um, in Acts chapter 16, they begin a second missionary journey from Antioch. So they go to Jerusalem, they get the Jerusalem council, they come back to Antioch, they share the news, and they depart on another missionary journey. And Barnabas and John Mark go in a different direction, and so the gospel is moving out in these, you know, these circles um, with multiple streams. And in Acts chapter 16, they end up in Philippi, Paul and Silas and Timothy, and the story that we're about to pick up on, there's a situation where they, they have this slave girl that keeps following him around and interrupting, and, you know, eventually Paul's had enough, and he commands a spirit to come out of her. And that's a problem because this slave girl made her owners a lot of money by, by prophesying or telling the future and telling people's fortunes to them. So the owners are really upset about this, and they cause this big uproar. And uh, the, the result is that Paul and his companions end up flogged and imprisoned. And we pick up the story in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. And I love that introduction to our time in the Word today because I just have to stop and say, you know, after the day they'd had... I don't know if I would even be awake at midnight, let alone singing psalms and hymns and praise and, and praying together and, and doing so in such a way that other people would be able to hear it and to see it. And so there's an authenticity to their commitment to Jesus. There's an authenticity to their experience of the risen Lord. There's an authenticity to the message that they have been proclaiming, that, that it's not being deterred. It's not being derailed by the current circumstances. In fact, we're told that the prisoners were listening to them, and there's a good chance that the guard was hearing them as well and forming opinions. And, and 
it's a say what moment. It's like, really? Say what? After the day they had, I'm not sure that would be my response. In fact, a lot of times it ain't. It's troubling to me sometimes how little it takes to derail me and to get me to think, oh, geez, poor me, you know, really, God, come on, I can't believe the traffic, or I can't believe this, or I can't believe I burned my dinner, or, you know, these like little tiny, tiny, tiny things. And yet their response to being beaten unjustly, to being imprisoned, to being in a jail cell in stocks, was to be praying and singing hymns. In verse 26, we pick up, here's the miracle. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake, such, so, such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Now, just a little insight, if you're not aware, if you, if you were a prisoner, a Roman guard charged to keep prisoners, and they escaped, it was your life. Like, you were done. That, that was the penalty for losing a prisoner in your charge. And so, it, you know, it, it, it was a very motivating uh, factor for them. And so, when he wakes up, he must have fallen asleep uh, while they were praying and, and singing, singing hymns. Uh, he wakes up and sees the doors open, and he just assumes they've left. And so he assumes that his life was over. He immediately goes to despair. He immediately believes that his actions deserved death. And there's an interesting parallel here to the gospel. Uh, Last week, Pastor Zach kind of walked you through the Romans road. And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. The, The payment that we have earned for our sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And so you see this happen very quickly for this jailer. He really believes his actions in this miracle have resulted in the loss of his life, and he's about to fall on his own sword rather than, you know, stand trial and be publicly humiliated. Um, He believes his life is over, and then Paul cries out, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And that had to be good news for this jailer who obviously has a large family, as we'll see as the story goes on. And and it was a turning point in his life. And we see that evidenced by the next two verses. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I think we have to fill in a few of the gaps here because the narrative is advancing pretty quickly. But if we can put ourselves in this situation... He's just experienced new life. He's gone from the point of death, the point of despair, to new life. And I have to imagine that he saw and he heard something in the authentic testimony of Paul and Silas and Timothy after the day they'd had sitting in a jail cell in a Roman prison, singing praises to God and praying. And he wanted what he saw. He wanted what he had seen. Because they should have been in the same despair that he was in just a few moments ago. And so he says, what must I do to be saved? He knows it's real. He knows it's true. He knows it's the real deal. 
And here's where it really gets good. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And she's basically saying, believe in the Lord Jesus. That's what you need to do to experience salvation. You say, is it really that simple? And I think we have to understand that there is a difference between believing that something is true and believing in the truth of something. And so I don't think it's a coincidence when say believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in him as Lord and Savior. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And one of the best ways to illustrate this, and it's been done before, but I can't improve on it a whole lot, and it would be better if I hadn't been sitting on this stool the whole time, but if we take this stool and we say, do I believe that the stool can hold my weight? I can go through a progression, and and let's say that this was a little more rickety-looking stool, and We'd never really seen anybody on it. I could investigate it a little bit. I could see if it's sturdy, and I could, I could answer some questions. I could be curious. I could get curious about the stool's capacity to hold my weight, similar to people's experience with the gospel. When they first start to hear the gospel or hear the message of Jesus, they might become curious, and they might have some questions and some, but what abouts, and some, how does this work? And they get curious, and they might even come to a place where they're convinced, and I could become convinced that this stool will, will bear my weight. That's being convinced that it has the capacity, but I'm not believing in that stool's capacity to hold my weight until I get on it and remove all other resources that point right there is when I'm convinced and committed and believing in the stool's ability to hold me up. And the same is true with the gospel. We can become convinced that Jesus can do everything he said he could do and that the Holy Spirit comes in and everything else. But until we move from believing that to believing in and put our trust completely and entirely and 100% reliant upon We're still just believing that, not yet believing in. Believing in moves from a theoretical, conceptual faith to an active faith of total trust and dependence and reliance. And I believe that it is saving faith, believing in faith that Christ calls us to, and that Peter I'm sorry, Paul and Silas and Timothy tell the jailer he must experience. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting. It doesn't say the Savior Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. Believing in him means you're believing, you're signing on to his way of life. You're believing that the things he said are true and the things that he commands us to do are not just suggestions. They're requirements. And so in verse 32, we read, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And I wonder, what was the word of the Lord that they spoke to him? That was the message of Jesus Christ. That was the gospel. They spoke that to him. So that one little verse, those two lines in your Bible, represent the explanation of the gospel. And maybe there were some questions that were answered. We don't know. We don't have insight into all of that. But we do know that he had seen a miracle, and now he was going to hear the message. Now he needed to hear the message. 
And we have some insight into what that message might have been. If you go back to Acts chapter 13, picking up around verse 16, you get an insight into the message that Paul was proclaiming as he went on these missionary journeys. And there's a whole sermon that is included there for us. We don't have time to go through the whole thing, but we do have time, and we need to focus on verse 38 and 39 of Acts chapter 13. So if you want to flip back a few pages, I believe this is part of, and this would be the conclusion to, the word of the Lord that Paul spoke to them or that the disciples spoke to to this jailer. They say, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. I think that's the conclusion. That's the conclusion to Paul's message in Acts chapter 13. And as he would speak the word of the Lord, I have no doubt that was included when he shared this. And it's a powerful, powerful statement in these two verses, particularly the combination that the gospel is is freedom for, I'm sorry, forgiveness for your sins, that, that the sins you have committed have been wiped clean. There's freedom for sin in the gospel. That's the good news, that Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. We're free and we're justified. It's just as if we hadn't sinned. There's justification for our sins. There's payment for our sins, but it doesn't stop there. Verse 39, through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin set free from every sin. So it's not just freedom or forgiveness for sins. It's also freedom from sins. This is, this is the big church word sanctification. We talk about this sometimes. And, and if you don't have a church background, or even if you do, you're like, wow, that's a big word. I wonder what it means. Sanctification really just means to be made holy. To sanctify is to be made holy. And the idea that, that the Spirit of God comes and lives within us and changes us from the inside out and makes us holy is really good news. We don't just have to be forgiven for our sins. We can be freed from sin. And they both come through faith in Jesus, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just fire insurance and a get-out-of-jail-free card for when you die. It's freedom from sin. It's freedom to a new way of life. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, freedom from sin. And the good news of the gospel is that when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit moves in and takes up residence in our lives and begins to free us from sins. And, and one of the things that Wesleyans believe, one of the things that John Wesley believed and has taught, and Wesleyan doctrine says, is that you can be freed from your sin. You can be made holy. You don't have to keep sinning. You don't have to keep going down sin's destructive path. You can experience freedom from sin by submitting and following to the Lord, submitting and following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so there's really only one question, and that question is, who's on the throne? Who's on the throne of your life? Is it you? Is it some addiction or worldly pleasure or worldly definition of success? Or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he sitting on the throne? And are you following the Holy Spirit step by step to live out the life that Jesus called us to live, a life of love and hope and courage? 
And so it's possible that some people walked in here today or sat down and logged online today in bondage to sin, feeling hopeless, like that'll always be a part of my life. I'll never be free from that. And the good news of the gospel is that's not the case. You can be freed from your sin through the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you. You can be freed. I've seen it too many times. I've experienced it too many times. And so the question is, who's on the throne of your life? Is it you or is it the king who willingly gave his life as the payment for your sin? Trust me, you want him on the throne. You don't want to spend the rest of your life trying to justify yourself for your sin and trying to work out your own salvation apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from the Word of God, apart from the good news of the gospel. We want to seek His justification. We want to seek His sanctifying work in us. We want to seek Him making us holy from the inside out, changing us from the inside out. The same undeniable power and transformation that Paul experienced on the road to Damascus is available to us today. And we don't have to live in bondage to sin anymore. And so Paul is making a differentiation between the Old Testament law, which was do this, work hard, work harder, work harder, work harder, offer the right sacrifice, do this and this and this and this, with the New Testament gospel of grace through faith and the pursuit of righteousness and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's good news. And so I listened to a book this week, um, and the author, John Martin, made this statement, and it just riveted me. It said, there is more grace in Jesus then there is sin in you. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. So if you're listening to this and you feel like you are too far gone and it's too late and you'll never be good enough, it's not too late. You're not too far gone. There is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in you. And the good news of the gospel is that we can get more of Jesus into our lives. We can experience more of his grace in our lives. We can get more of Jesus in us when we spend time in his word on a regular basis. We can get more of Jesus in us when we go to him in prayer and we cry out to him in prayer. We can get more of Jesus in us when we serve others in his name. We can get more of Jesus in us when we share the message of Jesus, when we evangelize. You're never more like Jesus than when you're serving someone or telling somebody about him. Because that's what Jesus did. He lived a life of service and proclamation of the good news. He said, I came among you as one who serves. And everywhere he went, every opportunity he had, he told people about the kingdom of God. And we can get more of Jesus in us when we do those things in the power of his spirit. And we get to see this lived out in this story, in this Roman jailer. In verse 33, he says, At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. He immediately begins serving them, at great risk to himself, mind you. And then he and all his family were baptized. And it says the word immediately. Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them, serving them. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole family. There it is again. Believe in believe in. He was all in. He wasn't holding anything back. He was taking personal risk. He began to serve immediately. And it says that, that he, he was immediately baptized as well. And I think both of these are evidence 
They're both evidence of an active faith that truly believes in Jesus. It embraces the gospel wholeheartedly and open-handedly. And notice on this baptism, there was no cleanup period. There wasn't this period of time where he and his family had to get the sin out of their lives so that they could be baptized. This is an important thing. Don't miss it. That's like saying, well, I'll go to the ER when I stop bleeding. No. Go now. They can help you. Don't wait until you get cleaned up. I'm sure there were customs and there were parts and habits and maybe even addictions in his life or in the life of some of his family. And yet they believed in, they accepted it wholeheartedly and open-handedly. They began to serve. They began uh, to make a public proclamation of their faith through baptism. It's important to understand baptism. We've been talking a lot about this. We're going to celebrate baptisms next week. Every week, two or three more people sign up. We're, We're going to have a lot of baptisms next week. It's going to be exciting. You don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. They're going to be in both services. But baptism is not declaring that you're sinless. It's declaring that you've been saved. That's the proclamation of baptism. It's not professing your perfection. It's professing that you've been redeemed. You're under new ownership. You're under new management. You've got a new Lord. You've got a new Savior. There's a new person on the throne of your life. And we see that as they move through this progression, through this progression of salvation and then service and baptism, we see the result of that. In the second half of verse 34, he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He was filled with joy. And so our bottom line is this. Our proper response to the gospel is to believe be saved, and to be baptized. Believe, be saved, and be baptized. We see that in just these few verses. We see that progression. The gospel, the good news, is that forgiveness and freedom are brought into our lives through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's not just forgiveness. It's also freedom. It doesn't just wipe the slate clean going in the to the past, it also sets us up for a faithful living in the future, for freedom from sin in the future. And our response is to believe, to be saved, and to be baptized, to believe in, to believe in the power of the gospel, to believe in the truth of the gospel, to rely upon it, cling to it, trust in it, to, to go all in and not hold anything back. And then to be saved by it, to be saved, be forgiven for and freed from our sin. That's salvation. It's not just salvation from the penalty of our sin. It's salvation bringing freedom from sin in the future. That Jesus would not just be Savior. He would be Lord of all. He would be the King on the throne of our lives. And then to be baptized, to make a public profession of faith in Jesus. To tell people, hey, there's a new King on the throne. This is who I am. This is where I am. This is who I'm following. And so you might be asking, okay, what's your next step? What's your next step? I believe everybody has a next step. The gospel and life in Christ is not like this. You get to a certain point and you just level off and never move forward. I think we always have a next step. What's your next step? If you've never been baptized, baptize, 
Baptism might be your next step. If you're, if you're listening or watching this and you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're just curious or you're just convinced, but you haven't made a commitment, you haven't believed in, you're still believing that, you're not believing in Jesus and his power to transform your life, then maybe that's your next step, is to accept him as Lord and Savior, to put him on the throne of your life. If you've done that but you haven't been baptized, then maybe it's to be baptized. There's actually a baptism class today at the 1030, after the 1030 service. We'll meet down in the youth room. I don't know how many people were there. will be there. It might be a one-on-one. <laughs> we'll see. And if you're watching online and you're like, yes, I want to be baptized, but I can't make it to the class today, fill out that online connection card or send me an email, marc at linwoodchurch.org, and we'll get, we'll get you taken care of. We'll have a conversation. Make sure you understand what is involved in baptism. That's a big part of the class. And then find out some particulars from you. And then next week we'll celebrate as people step forward and make a public profession of their faith. But maybe you're listening to this and you're like, I've already been saved, Pastor Mark. I've already been baptized. I've made a public profession. What's my next step? And I would ask you, is there any area in your life that you're not walking in freedom? any area where, where you need to pursue freedom from sin and allow the Holy Spirit to work in your life and pray a prayer that invites Jesus to be on the throne of that part of your life. Or maybe you just need to speak the word of the Lord to someone like Paul and Silas and Timothy did. Maybe that's your next step is to tell somebody what you've seen and heard. Jesus said way back at the beginning of this Acts adventure, You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the utter ends of the earth. Well, here we are at the utter ends of the earth, negative 18. (laughs) And we can tell somebody, we can speak the word of the Lord to somebody. We can tell somebody what we've seen and heard. We can tell them the good news that there is not just forgiveness from sin. There's also freedom from sin. You can be forgiven and you can be freed. And so whatever your response is, I pray that it's a faithful response, a response that acknowledges him on the throne of your life and moves you forward in following him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your amazing love. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the good news that we aren't just freed from the penalty of our sin. We can be freed from sin itself we can begin to live lives of holiness and righteousness that are a testament to your goodness and your grace, that bear witness to the truth and the power of the gospel to transform a human heart and transform a human life. So, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will move in power right now that you'll tap people on the shoulder and whisper in their ear, that you'll bring conviction that moves them towards God, that moves them towards a deeper, closer walk with you. And whatever our response is, Lord, may we be a people who respond in faith and take our next step. In Jesus' name we pray.